Hey, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide called 13 Reasons Why Your Child Won't Listen to You and What to Do About Each One, just head over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today we're continuing our series of episodes at the intersection of parenting and food with a topic that I know many parents have been eagerly awaiting. We're going to do a deep dive into the research on how sugar impacts our children. And so my guest today, Dr. Michael Gorin, is Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, which is affiliated with the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. He's Program Director for Diabetes and Obesity at the Sabin Research Institute, and he holds the Dr. Robert C. and Veronica Atkins Endowed Chair on Childhood Obesity and Diabetes. Dr. Gorin also serves as Co-Director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. He's published over 350 peer-reviewed articles and reviews and is editor of the book Childhood Obesity, Causes, Consequences, and Intervention Approaches, co-editor of Dietary Sugars and Health, and his most recent book, co-authored with Emily Ventura, is Sugar Proof, The Hidden Dangers of Sugar That Are Putting Your Child's Health at Risk and What You Can Do. Dr. Gorin has received a variety of awards from his work. He's a native of Glasgow, Scotland, and received his PhD from the University of Manchester in England. Welcome, Dr. Gorin. Hi, Jen. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me on and for bringing up this important topic. Thank you. And so I wonder if we can start with uh, just a brief overview of your recent book, Sugar Proof, and what that contains, because we're going to spend most of our time digging into the research that you cite in that book. Yeah, so Sugar Proof, which was published last year, basically wanted to write a book that summarized the research because the research doesn't always reach the public. So we wanted to get the research out there because Families everywhere need to know how and why sugar is affecting kids, short-term, long-term, and what we can do about it. So the first section of the book is the science of how sugars affect kids and why kids are more vulnerable. The second is how to change that in your family with simple tips, recipes, meal plans, challenges, and so on. And then the third part is the sugar-proof kitchen with recipes and getting kids involved in the process. And so we want to put all that together in a package because we think it's just such an important issue right now. Yeah. Okay, great. And so we're going to spend most of our time today focused on the first portion of the book, which is about what the research says about sugar. And yeah, I know that the second and third portions are just as important. And I've actually been working with my family and and some listeners as well on ways that we can incorporate the ideas from the book and shift our own consumption of sugar and see it where we hadn't necessarily been seeing it before. So, um, But today we'll focus on the scientific research. And so let's start with the children's preference for sugary foods. And, and I know that you describe your daughter's elementary school science experiment where she showed an innate preference for sugar where children were had a stronger preference for lemonade that had more sugar stirred into it. And teenagers and adults had a lower preference for lemonade with, with a lot of sugar stirred into it. And they preferred the less sweetened versions. And I'm curious about whether this preference for sugar is learned or innate. Can you speak to that to start, please? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's both. I think there is an innate preference and a learned adaptation. So we know not just from my daughter's little experiment, but research studies have shown that there's a built-in preference that we're born with a preference for sweetness. And the thought there is that it's supposed to be protective from an evolutionary perspective. It's supposed to favor liking of breast milk, which is sweet, to favor the seeking out of good calories, and to avoid food that has spoiled or become contaminated, and to avoid toxic foods. But you know, now the food environment is very different than what it was for those ancestors, where 
80% of foods targeted towards children have added sugars, which has over 200 different names. So I think the food environment in which we're now living is very different to our ancestors. And as soon as infants and children get exposed to sugar, that built-in preference gets amped up even higher. And that's becoming problematic because that's just translate to craving of more sugar, more sweet foods. So that's the problem that we're faced with. Okay. And I know that a lot of the the studies that you cite in the book are from experiments on rats. And one of the ones that I want to quote from is uh, in, in the book, you say, if a pregnant mother consumes excessive sugar or sweetness in any form, it can reach the unborn baby who will then develop an even greater than usual preference for more sweetness. And so I took a look at the paper that, that you cited there and that paper actually didn't specifically look at sugar, but actually call, and looked at what the authors called a junk food diet, which is a pretty loaded term and included uh, foods like cookies and jam donuts, but also potato chips. And the rats were in these cages and you're getting a choice of either this nutritionally balanced and probably pretty boring rat chow or these jam donuts and potato chips. And I was sort of just thinking, you know, if I'm a rat in a cage, am I going to choose this, this boring food or am I going to choose this probably calorically dense and, and tasty food? And I'm wondering if that as a rat is the most exciting part of my day, can I really compare the rat's response here to living in a cage where there's nothing else to do to a life where we're out in the world and we're doing other things and this is a small part of how we live our lives? Yeah, there, there's a variety of different studies. You've, you've, you know, you've highlighted one there, which is a study in, in rats that's not the sole evidence, although for this particular question of whether consumption during pregnancy increases that built-in preference for sweetness that we're born with. That there's I don't know of any human study, so we turn to the animal studies for that particular one question. These studies in humans are so difficult to do. You'd have to like take a bunch of pregnant women, control exactly what they eat during pregnancy. Is it ethical? Is it even doable? I don't know, probably not. And then keep everything else constant and then look at their babies and monitor their babies for the first several years of life and see how their preference changes. That's a really difficult study to do. There's some you know, fragments of those types of studies that are doable. So what we have to do in this situation is take the whole collection of evidence from rats, from humans, cohort observational studies to try and piece together a story, actually proving the causation in, this, in any particular situation is so difficult, especially for these long-term studies involving pregnancy exposure through to infant and childhood development. It's just really, really challenging, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. So we have to use a variety of different approaches to pull together the data and try and come up with a story that matches the findings. Okay. All right. And so I think that's sort of a theme that we're going to come back to throughout the conversation here. And so moving on to fructose, I wonder if you can firstly tell us what is fructose and how is that different from glucose and and other forms of sugar that we're ingesting? And where do we find it? Where does fructose show up? Okay. So in terms of the structure, so ordinary sugar, sucrose, white crystal stuff, it's what we call a disaccharide. It's two smaller sugars joined together. Uh, one of those sugars is glucose, and one of those other sugars is fructose. That's the sugar in cane, in beet, and in many other places. It's the most predominant. Glucose and fructose are almost very similar. They both have the same chemical formula, those chemistry fans out there. C6H12O6. One thing's different, though, and which turns out to be critical. The glucose is a sh shape like a hexagon. And the fructose is shaped like a pentagon. As soon as you consume that sucrose, the glucose and the fructose break apart and they have different destinies. The fructose is twice as sweet as the glucose. The glucose is the energy that's used all throughout the body from your brain down to your toes. It drives metabolism. It drives as the fuel of every cell in your body. So it's vitally important to maintain the glucose levels. Fructose, on the other hand, is not directly used for energy, which is surprising to many people. Almost all of the fructose that gets absorbed in the gut gets taken up by the liver. The job of the liver is to filter everything that gets absorbed by the gut and remove it 
drugs, toxins, bad chemicals, alcohol. Add to that list fructose. The liver filters out the fructose because it doesn't want the fructose getting to the rest of the body. There has to be a reason why. And what does it do with that fructose? It converts it to fat. And that metabolic process is the same as what happens with alcohol. And it's very inflammatory. That's what produces some of the inflammatory response to sugar. And that fructose can get stuck in the liver and cause fatty liver disease, which wasn't even a disease 10 or 15 years ago. Or those fats can be exported back into the blood and cause dyslipidemia, which is the you know, preclinical marker for cardiovascular disease. And that's why we see a relationship between sugar consumption and heart disease is because of the fructose being converted to lipids in the liver. So it's not just about the calories. It's about what happens to those different chemicals that get absorbed and how they, how they're different. That's a long answer to the first part of your question. <laughs> Wait, which was actually very, very step-by-step and helped me to visualize yes. it. So thank you for that. Yes. So visualize <laughs> those molecules is a good way to do it. Yeah. And the, the second part of the question was, where do we find fructose? Yeah. Right. So, so ordinary sugar is half fructose, like I just mentioned. And then there's some sugars that are even higher in fructose. High fructose corn syrup being the most infamous, which most people are now quite familiar with and know what to look out for and know what to avoid. But there's other sugars that are just as common, if not more common, that are even higher in fructose. Some of the fruit sugars, for example. So fructose is ordinarily the predominant sugar in fruit, which usually sets off alarm bells for many people. Based on what I just said, they're thinking, uh oh, I'm putting two and two together. He did he just say we shouldn't eat fruit? <laughs> and that's not what I said. Yes. Okay. Because we'll talk about this also. Eating fruit is very different than extracting the fructose from the fruit and concentrating it, which is what happens in fruit sugar. Yeah. So fruit sugar, which is a very popular sugar now, is basically taking that fructose out of the fruit and boiling it down, just like you take the sucrose out of a cane or a beet and make a sugar out of it. The same process, you take the fructose. So you're talking now about concentrating that sugar, which is predominantly fructose, and then con- ingesting it. But instead of calling it high fructose corn syrup, we call it fruit sugar. But it's even higher in fructose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this, uh, thank you for that. Now I think we have a clearer picture of what it is and where it comes from. And so now let's go into what effect that has on the body. And you've mentioned a couple of ways, and I want to dig into some of those. One of the studies that you looked at had volunteers consuming two different varieties of Dr. Pepper in a random order, one made with regular sugar, which I think they must have gotten direct from the manufacturer, the paper said, because uh, it, it's hard to find <laughs> on the shelves, and one made with high fructose corn syrup. And uh, testing the blood of the volunteers after over a period of several hours and seeing how much fructose is circulating. And it seems fairly clear that there was more fructose circulating among the people who had consumed the high fructose corn syrup. And then I'm just trying to go from there to, okay, so what does that mean? Because the research that I was able to find was seemed really mixed in terms of whether diabetes precedes high blood pressure or whether high blood pressure precedes diabetes. And of course, I'm not an expert on this topic. Uric acid, I felt as though I was definitely over my head. and But the meta-analyses seem to indicate that the message that lower is always better is potentially not the complete picture. I wonder if you can help us understand, what do you make of this body of work around the effects that high fructose corn syrup and fructose specifically has on our bodies? Yeah, well, actually, this is one situation where we do have pretty clear causative evidence Mm, um, because people have done detailed feeding studies in humans, not just a Dr. Pepper study, which, by the way, didn't just show higher circulating fructose levels, but the high fructose corn syrup Dr. Pepper group had, I believe, increases in blood pressure and blood lipids, but that's just one study. Other studies, uh, including uh, Kimber Stanhope from UC Davis, has done some of the best studies where she essentially does what I described before, except not in pregnant people, takes adults, locks them up for several weeks and feeds them known foods. So it's a captive audience. So it's mm. a bit like a rat in a cage, but yes. not quite. <laughs> it's a lot like it. The closest the closest we can do and we know exactly what they're consuming and her studies in which she has 
fed varying amounts of fructose, so including a dose response study where, and she showed quite clearly that it's excess fructose in a dose response manner, not excess glucose that causes things like fatty liver, dyslipidemia, uric acid buildup, which by the way, where does that come from? That's a byproduct of how fructose is metabolized in the liver and can contribute to inflammation and blood pressure. So this is actually quite clear evidence. Now, and the link is clearest with those cardiovascular endpoints and the inflammatory endpoints and the fatty liver endpoints. Okay, perfect. So that's really helpful to understand. And then Moving on from there, I was really surprised to get to the end of the book and find that so many of your recipes involve using dried fruit as sweeteners, given that we now know that fruit is high in fructose. And no, we're not, again, saying people shouldn't eat fruit, but that dried fruit is a highly concentrated form supply of fructose. Can you help us to see why you're recommending using dried fruit as a sweetener when we see that fructose is something that we potentially should be consuming less of? Yeah, well, we, we wanted to come up with creative strategies to as alternatives to added sugar. And one way to do that is to kind of take advantage of the natural sweetness. And nothing in this world is perfect because you're right, it's there's still sugar in those dried fruits. And so let's say, or not even dried, let's say whole fruits like a banana. So our, our for example, our sugar-proof blueberry muffins have no added sugar. They're just sweetened with banana mm-hmm. in the background. And I think there's advantages of that, despite the fact that you are getting some fructose from the sugars in the banana. You could also get all the fibers that are in the banana, all the phytonutrients that are in the banana, the taste of the banana, etc. So there's lots of other advantages that I would much prefer the natural sweetness and the natural flavor versus the kind of potent sweetness that you get just from added sugar. So those are the advantages. And then there are some fruits that are higher in fructose and some that are similar to sucrose. So, for example, bananas are pretty even in terms of glucose and fructose. Mm. Uh, Dates we use a lot are high in fiber, for example. So those are just different ways we do it to try to minimize the sugar load and get natural flavors, natural sweetness in there as well. Okay. All right. Great. And so I know that one of the the primary things that parents are concerned about when they think about how much sugar their children are eating is their children's behavior. And does their behavior change after they eat sugar? And I think Mm -hmm. you actually worked on a study where you were looking at the behavior of Latino and African-American adolescents, and you gave them two different breakfasts. One was a Pop-Tart, a piece of string cheese, and an orange-flavored drink called Tampico. And the other had a whole wheat bagel with margarine and a glass of water with a fiber supplement. And you observed their behavior after they had this breakfast. And I wonder if you can just tell us about uh, what you saw in that study. Yeah, so this was a study designed to test that question of how children respond acutely to different types of meals, like you just described. One was high in sugar, one was higher in fiber. And we we had them consume the meal and then put them in a room, again, again, a bit like putting a rat in a cage, but we put them in a room where they could choose to sit and read or fall asleep or get on an exercise bike or play video games. So we just observed what they did with the time that they had after the meal. And what we saw was that after the high sugar meal, kids tended to bounce around a bit more. They were, weren't as stable in their energy levels. They were a bit more hyperactive at first, and then they kind of crashed a little whereas the high-fiber group were a bit more stable in terms of their energy level. Okay. And I want to sort of key in on what you said about a bit more. And that does seem to be an important phrase here, because I think you actually created a new light plus activity category because there was so little moderate or vigorous activity going on. And so I think when parents, particularly my listeners who often have younger children, they're thinking about sugar, they're thinking about their kid bouncing off the walls. And that's really not what you saw here, right? You saw a slight increase in activity. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, again, these are teenagers which who tend yeah. to not bounce off walls um, <laughs> and in a very contained artificial environment. Yeah. So, again, it's not ideal experimentally or it's not ideal in terms of trying to get the naturalistic response, but 
from an experimental standpoint, we wanted to observe them. So it's always kind of a compromise of the pros and cons of doing that. We, for this particular study, made a decision to look at the careful, you know, we wanted to look at them under carefully controlled conditions where we could observe them. So it's unlikely that those kids followed their normal, typical patterns we tried to make available. But again, it's a very artificial environment. Yeah, yeah. If it was in young kids, yeah, they might have been bouncing off the wall. But again, even for young kids or any kids or any adult, I mean, I think context and setting are very important in terms of how you respond to food. And so it's very hard to simulate that in an experimental condition because how we respond to any input of food or stress or anything we put into our body, I think the response to that, I think we all realize, is very contextually driven in terms of where we are, our setting, and who's around us and other factors as well. Yeah. Okay. And then continuing on that theme, there was another study that looked at children who were given orange juice sweetened with sucrose. So that they were either getting orange juice by itself or orange juice that was sweetened with sucrose. And 40 to 45 minutes later, the children who had the additional sweetener were less able to sit still in class, had more inappropriate behavior, more difficulty concentrating. But even the children who had the, just the regular orange juice had consumed sucrose, right? And so, and I think also you had mentioned just a little bit further in the book about how artificial sweeteners can have a very similar effect on the body. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to understand, what can we actually understand from the study where children are given two different amounts of sucrose rather than, I know a lot of these studies will give a, a child something that's sweetened with sucrose or something that's sweetened with low-calorie sweetener and make that comparison, which introduces its own problems. What can we truly understand about children's behavior from after they've consumed sugar and low-calorie sweetener and no sweetener at all? Yeah, I mean, again, the studies are difficult to do and hard to come by. So not a lot of people have studied this. Most of the studies which were reviewed in a study some years ago, I think almost 20 years ago, reviewed the evidence and predominant studies in this area compared regular sugar with an alternative sweetener like sucralose. So it's not the best comparison. As you mentioned, there is no great placebo in this particular situation. So I think, again, this is just one part of the story. We need to look at the totality of the evidence. And ultimately, for me, doing the research on the book, by the way, on all these studies we're talking about, these are from the literature, not all our studies. Very few of them are our studies. But looking at the totality of the evidence, I was struck by some of the larger studies that look at the functional outcomes. So we can argue about whether there's an immediate response to sugar. Most parents will tell you, yes, there's a response to sugar. My kids get hyperactive and bounce off the wall if I give them too much sugar. But what about the actual outcome? And so studies have shown, for example, that kids who consume more sugar have lower test scores don't perform as well in class and have poorer outcomes. Those to me were very striking. Again, there's not a lot of studies in that area, maybe one or two, but the results were quite clear and more convincing. So again, you got to look at the totality of the evidence of all those paradigms, the immediate effects on the brain, the short-term effects on behavior and the longer-term effects on functional outcomes. Mm -hmm. What's the overall story that we can conclude from the totality of the evidence? Yeah. Okay. So I would like to get into the cognitive aspects as well. And I I wonder if before we can leave the behavior aspect behind, you know, I, I think that a lot of parents will say that if you ask them, yes, my child has a big response when they eat sugar. But uh, of the parents that I work with, I would say that there's also sort of a, almost a sort of blinders on, this is what I'm seeing in the moment. I just gave them sugar. This must be responsible for their behavior. And they don't necessarily take into account the fact their child didn't sleep well last night, or they went to bed super late the night before, or they had a squabble with their sibling that morning, or there's some other thing brewing. And like you said, the context is super, super important. And so I'm wondering if advising parents to maybe keep a journal of their child's sugar consumption. And if there are a lot of parties going on in a week or something, keeping track of bedtimes and what else is going on in the child's life. So that no matter what any particular study says about, you know, that those 40 kids sugar consumption, that you can have a true picture of what's going on with your child that takes all of these contextual factors into account and doesn't just look directly at sugar. Is there hyperactivity or not? Would you recommend doing something like that? 
Yeah, and we do. And that's exactly what we do in part two of the book when we guide families through our seven-day challenge where we say, okay, if you're not convinced, let's do an experiment and see what happens when your kids are off of sugar. Mm -hmm. And you can see for yourself and record the changes. And I think we have to self-experiment in our families and be family scientists because it's so variable. And even day-to-day, I mean, studies have shown day-to-day the blood, if you take kids or adults and give them the same exact dose of sugar, day-to-day the variation in blood sugar will be quite variable. So that's pretty telling. And so, you know, it's the same with diets. I'm not going to say there's any one particular diet that works for everybody. There isn't. I think everybody's different. Everybody's context is different day-to-day. And it's not quite as simple as saying any one thing. But I will say, I strongly believe, and that's why I wrote the book, that no matter where you are or what you say, reducing sugar is going to be helpful. So that we know, and that is something that we're we're working towards. So, you know, we can discuss the science and tear, you know, focus in on experiments and find the pitfalls and limitations, which is, you know, great exercise. But at the end of the day, reducing sugar is going to be helpful. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned cognitive development, and I thought that the book was pretty provocative on that topic. And so you said, if you can look at the brains of healthy adults who typically drink one or two sodas per day and compare them to the brains of people who drank less than one per day, you would see something astonishing. The brains of the group drinking sugary beverages would be smaller. To put it bluntly, new research shows that too much sugar shrinks your brain. And yeah, that was absolutely confirmed in the study that you cite, but it's a really, it's a small amount. And it ended up actually not being significant after adjusting for other dietary factors and physical activity. And so I'm trying to see, is it the sugar that's really driving this? Is the the reduction of volume of the brain enough to make a difference? And should we be really concerned about it? Yeah, it is provocative. And it's a, what was it, one or 2% shrinkage of the brain? I, I don't want my yeah, brain shrinking, like by, yeah. but I don't want my brain shrinking by any amount, really. And again, it's about the totality of the evidence. We know sugar affects the brain in different ways. We just published a paper showing how, ba- you know, it was a study of one-month-old babies and their brain structure, uh, looking at how it was different in babies born to mothers who consumed a lot of sugar during pregnancy, and we saw a lot of differences in their brain organization. Now, what that actually means in terms of functional outcomes in those babies, I don't know, because we just studied them at one month of age. But we do know that sugar affects the brain in many different ways. I think that's probably factual and difficult to argue with. Mm -hmm. Does it shrink the brain? I'm citing one study that shows a 2% shrinkage of the brain. Like you say, some of that is explained away by other potential confounders. So. That's not the be-all and end-all of the story. That's just one particular study you know, on top of many other studies. Yeah. Okay. And how much of this do you think is a factor of sugar and how much is associated with things like socioeconomic status, which tends to be a confounder on the kinds of tests where we are testing people's cognitive performance? And we know that that is intimately wrapped up in what people are able to afford to eat. And I'm wondering if it's linked to larger issues related to the kinds of choices that people who don't have a lot of income have related to the foods that they eat compared to specifically sugar consumption. Yeah, that's such a great question, Jan. I mean, it's so hard to separate out these different factors, which are intricately related in terms of our lifestyle and our effects. So trying to separate them is really difficult. You know, we can statistically adjust, which, you know, has its pros and cons. We can do studies in different segments of the population who are eating different diets. We can control diets. So, I mean, again, it's the same issue. We have to use different approaches to try and unravel the complexity of all these different factors that are interconnected. And doing that in humans who are living different lives and different situations is extremely difficult and extremely challenging. Okay. And then 
Towards the end of the chapter on the cognitive issues associated with drinking sugar, you talk about decision-making and whether sugar affects people's ability to make what are rational, good decisions, as it were. And citing a study, I think, of one of your colleagues of of people who had just fasted for adolescents who had fasted for 12 hours and then were given a chance to choose a food to eat that they really enjoyed or get a monetary compensation a month later for, I think, from what I could tell from the study, it was basically what the slice of pizza was worth a month later. And the ability to say, no, I don't want the pizza and I'd rather have the $2 a month later was seen as proof of the ability to delay gratification. And you know, we've done a, a whole episode on the marshmallow test and again, linking that back to socioeconomic status because that's really the biggest correlation between ability to delay gratification is with socioeconomic status. And so you say in the book, by giving kids less sugar and especially as fructose, we can promote the healthy development of their reward centers, which ultimately help them make better decisions. And I'm trying to see the evidence for not just the decision-making in the moment, but the development of those decision-making centers in the brain and the connection to fructose. And I'm not quite able to make the connection. Wait, what am I missing here? I don't know. Again, it's just a very complex picture in terms of trying to unravel all those things. I think well, delayed gratification does have very, you know, a lot of different important, predicts a lot of important outcomes, that one particular study. And I, I don't know a lot of other studies you know, related to sugar. And was that, you know some of these studies better than I do. Sounds like you, you've done your homework, this is great. <laughs> and now particularly, I'm trying to remember, was that study crossover or not? Did it, because... The better way to do it, to control for the socioeconomic thing would be, I think, to have kids undergoing different conditions and then you control for it. But I can't remember if that study was possible. I don't remember for sure. And and I didn't write it down in my notes. So (laughs) I don't remember for sure. Okay. Well, I'm hoping it was crossover. Um, (laughs) So that one day they would get, they would get the sugar and the other day they wouldn't get the sugar and see what the results were in each case. Yeah. I don't remember that being the case. And, and I'm wondering if that would work because then they would know sort of the outcome, like the thing that they were going to be asked at the end is, would you prefer the money or not? And I wonder if they would adjust their response <laughs> based on what they well, said. Again, <laughs> again, experimentally, you have you have to do your best. So you, yeah. you know, in that situation, you would randomize the order. Yeah, the conditions are given, which is a way to try and overcome that limitation. So, mm-hmm. okay. All right. And so so coming out of all of this, your overall impression is based on the body of research is that consuming a lot of sugar and particularly a lot of fructose is not good for children's bodies and brains. Is that an appropriate way of characterizing your overall opinion? Yeah. And just making that a bit more nuanced is to say that the outcomes might be even worse in children because of the developmental aspects. Okay. That their brains are growing, their guts are evolving, their livers are developing. And during that the developmental process, the adverse effects of sugar may be even worse. Okay. And longer lasting. Yeah. Okay. So from there, we start to talk about, well, what is an appropriate amount of sugar to be ingesting? And I know that the World Health Organization has guidelines, but they, reading through the guidelines, it seems as though they are really looking at the evidence and saying, well, the evidence here is actually not very high quality, the evidence that they reviewed. And they have produced a recommendation to limit free sugars to less than 10% of total energy intake. And that evidence is based on moderate quality evidence. And they're mostly looking at what they call dental caries. I've never heard the word caries before, but I understand it's a synonym for cavities. And so what they're saying is that you should eat less sugar. And the primary reason you should do that is because it's going to give you dental cavities. There is really, the World Health Organization does not base this recommendation on any other health aspects related to sugar intake. And then they go on to recommend, uh, suggest a recommendation of 5% of your caloric intake should be from sugars based on, quote, very low quality evidence from ecological studies again, related to dental cavities. So I was super surprised to see what they're calling moderate and low quality evidence entirely related to dental cavities and then go on to see this pretty stringent recommendation. Do you know anything about that recommendation process or what happened there? That particular recommendation you're talking about from the World Health Organization, I think it's over 20 years old now. Mm -hmm. And there have been a number of different recommendations since then that have expanded 
the evidence base beyond uh, dental disease. Most recently, for example, the American Heart Association has come out with recommendations based on a lot of the connections that we talked about related to sugar and cardiovascular disease, and they give limitations on added sugar. And then even more recently, as recently as January of 21, the USDA new dietary guidelines for America came out with a new recommendation, which we proposed in Sugar Proof, which is zero added sugars for between zero and two years of age. That's a brand new recommendation. I mean, so this is a fastly moving field. The research is changing. The new dietary guidelines also go along. Well, the previous one said 10% of added sugars. They didn't go to 5%, but they did say less than 10%. Mm-hmm. And their evidence base includes a lot more than just dental disease. The, the USDA did a really broad review. And many people were upset that they did not go to 5%. Mm. But I think saying less than 10% is still pretty good based on the evidence, which is much broader than it was for that World Health Organization recommendation that you mentioned. Okay, great. Thank you for for pulling that additional context in. And so that's, if we're looking at 5% and just starting there, that's about 25 grams of sugar for a child. Is that right? Approximately? Well, the thing for children is hard because it changes with age. So children eat different amounts based on their age. In Sugar Proof, we came up with an age-specific recommendation up to 18 years of age. Yeah, and stepping that up in stages. And I guess where I'm trying to go with this is that one of my listeners in particular has She's seeing these World Health Organization recommendations and the more, some of the more recent ones too and thinking, okay, yes, if the World Health Organization says this, we're going to do this. And then just how to put it into practice because you, as you said, it is everywhere. <laughs> you know, you eat ketchup with your fries and, and you're done. Half, half, of your, half of your caloric consumption of sugar for the day is done. And so what hope is there of us being able to actually you know, really live by these standards, eating in the real world, unless we are so enormously privileged that we can prepare all of our own foods from scratch. We have the time, we have the money to be able to buy all of these fresh foods and do it from scratch. Can people who live in the real world actually comply with these recommendations, do you think? I think it's very challenging. I mean, you make an excellent point. I think there's a complete mismatch between what these major health organizations are advocating for and what the food industry is producing. Uh So this is a problem because it's not a lot of added sugar. So what we're talking about here is added sugars, right? not all sugars. So there's no limits on fruits and vegetables and the natural sugars that that are in dairy, milk and cheese and so on. What we have to look out for is added sugars. And so I think there is places to start by being smart about choosing brands that have lower or zero added sugars. So you mentioned ketchup. Uh, not all ketchup has added sugars. There are ketchup brands with zero added sugars. Same is true for peanut butter, tomato sauce, yogurts, and so on. So that's one place to start. Mm-hmm. I think a big source of added sugars are in liquid form, sodas, juices, energy drinks, and so on. Juice is interesting, by the way, because the sugars in juice would be included in the World Health Organization definition of free sugars, Mm. but the sugars in juice are not technically included as an added sugar according to the USDA. I would argue with that. I go along with the free sugar idea because in juice, the sugars are liberated and it's very drinking a glass of juice is very different than eating an apple. So I would count those sugars in juices. So to come back to your question, Look out for the added sugars and get, try to eliminate liquid sugars. Those two alone will make a big dent so that you do have room to enjoy added sugars. Okay. 
And we had a call yesterday with the members of my community who were participating in this project to read the book and take on the ideas from the book and, and see what impacts it has on our families. And, and a couple of ideas came up in that conversation. And we had mentioned freezing bananas with a stick inside as a lollipop. And then you had mentioned freezing a, a bit of watermelon on a stick as a lollipop. And we're definitely going to try that. And the idea also came up of when a child wants to have something that has sugar in it, to balance that out with something that has complex carbs and fats in it that help to smooth out that the intake of sugar into the blood. Can you tell us about your breakfast experiment and what parents can take from that in terms of, you know, we're not going to give up sugar entirely, but what does that mean for how we can take on sugar that actually is really important as well? Yeah, I think you, so breakfast is typically a source of a lot of sugars and can set the day off into like a, a what we call the sugar roller coaster. Because when, when sugar is high at breakfast, it tends to be short lived. It provides a rapid spike of energy and that energy can fall and then you get hungry and you want more. So the idea is to try and start the day off with a stable blood sugar. And so in the book, I talk about an experiment I did wearing a glucose monitor where you can monitor your individual response to blood glucose showing, for example, if I had toast on eggs, my blood glucose stays pretty flat. Whereas if I have jam on toast, it goes way high and stays high throughout the morning. And that can be problematic. But there's a number of simple trips and hacks you can do to still enjoy toast in the morning if you like that, which I do depending on what you put on it. it, doesn't have to be jam. So by combining different foods and different nutrients, you can offset those glucose spikes. So the idea is to try and minimize them. So let's say you're making pancakes, for example, you can game the system by adding an extra egg white to up the protein. You can add some flax seeds or some chia seeds or hemp seeds to up the fiber and the probiotics, and you can serve it with fresh fruit or with yogurt doesn't have to be served with syrup, maybe a little bit of syrup, if that's what your kids like. But the point is, there's multiple ways to do it to game the system towards upping the nutritional quality at breakfast time. And studies have shown, for example, also that if kids have the choice between a high sugar breakfast cereal and a low sugar breakfast cereal, they're often just as happy with the low sugar breakfast cereal, especially if they can doctor it up themselves by, let's say, throwing some berries on there or throwing some flaxseed on there, for example. So there's different ways to mix it up, to basically make your own, with your own version to up the nutritional quality of these mm -hmm. typical items. Okay. And something that I've noticed <laughs> as we've been doing this, and, and I think other parents may as well, is that our children, when we say, okay, we're going to do this experiment to eat less sugar and see how it impacts us, that they tend to then gravitate towards the simple carbs. And so we might see this, that if we'd previously been eating toast and jam for breakfast, that now they just want toast and butter. And so maybe the fat is helping with that a little bit. But if they were, if they're just eating sort of plain white bread, which I think is broken down in the body in the same way as it's all sugar. It's because it's carbohydrates, it's broken down into sugar that we might think, well, I'm not eating the jam. And so I'm getting a lot less sugar when actually our body is not seeing it in that same way. Can you help us to understand why you don't explicitly advocate for consuming less simple carbs? And I'm not saying we shouldn't eat any carbs at all because our bodies need sugar, but why don't you advise us to eat fewer simple carbs? Yeah, well, basically just because of what you described, because those simple carbs are rapidly broken down into sugar. So white bread right. is made with you know white flour, which is basically a big long chain of glucose molecules that the body is very efficient at chopping up that white bread into little glucose molecules. So if you suck on a piece of white bread, it will soon very quickly taste sweet. As the yeah, I was shocked by that experiment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a hierarchy. So you can have a piece of white bread with jam. Mm -hmm. That would be like, you know, the worst. And then you can have white bread with butter, mm -hmm. which is okay because you've eliminated the jam. So you've done a lot better. But then you can go to, you know, a more processed bread, brown bread, or made with a less refined carbohydrate, or even a sourdough bread, which some studies show is less glycemic. So there's there's hierarchies to all these things, which you know can gradually 
improve the overall outcome and dampen the glucose response. Okay. And then you can put nut butter on it, for example, so you get more protein mm -hmm. or something with a bit more fiber. Yeah. Okay. Which can be even better. So there's there's multiple ways to do it. Okay. And I think related to that is the idea of smoothies. <laughs> and the kids are often quite willing to accept fruit in smoothie form that they may not necessarily accept in whole form. But I know that when you eat a, a whole fruit, you get a whole bunch of benefits that you don't necessarily get from drinking it in even the same fruit. You're breaking down the fiber and you can potentially not register it as chewing, as eating, and, and still feel hungry after it. Do you recommend smoothies consumption on a regular basis as a way of getting fruit intake if we're not eating much fruit right now? Or would it be better to eat the whole fruit if we can? I think both are good. For sure, I think we should be eating whole fruit multiple times a day if possible. Not not a lot all at once. That can be problematic. Mm. But smoothies are fine too. I, don't, I understand the concern over the shearing of the fibers and the satiation and so on. But Everything in life comes with pros and cons, and I'm, you know, I'm willing to take the pros because in a, I can make my kids a smoothie, or now they're old enough to make it themselves, so they know they you can they can get a good dose of fruits. They can add some decent sources of fiber in there. They can put some nut butter in there to get some protein. They can limit the added sugars in there. So I'd much rather they did that than went out to a fast food place and got a smoothie or a milkshake. Mm -hmm. which is just basically loaded sugars or even if they bought a smoothie at the grocery store so again there's a hierarchy with all of these things in terms of you know how you do it you can blend it less so the fibers aren't sheared you have control over that so what i like about the smoothie is that you're in control of what goes in there and you can load it you can game it in your favor okay and so as we come to a conclusion here i wonder if is there an overall message that you'd like to leave with parents to help them see a path forward on this in terms of what the research says about how sugar impacts our children's bodies and what we should do about that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's there's no easy solution. And I think there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion. But I think you we all just have to do the best that we can with what we've got and try and, you know, just be informed about the different effects and i think no matter no matter where you are on the spectrum i think there's going to be benefits and no matter where you are on believing the science or not and we've had a great discussion on the pros and cons of some of the studies which is you know i think very healthy and very fun but no matter where you are on those spectrums i think at the end of the day you're still going to get benefits by reducing sugar and i think it would be really hard to argue against that reducing sugar increasing fiber, increasing protein, increasing more fruits and vegetables. Just kind of don't lose sight of those basic principles and try and apply them to whatever your situation is that you're dealing with because everybody's situation is very different. Just don't lose sight of those basic, simple principles. Great. And you, at the beginning there, you mentioned misinformation and that immediately caught my attention. And I'm wondering, are there particular ideas that you see circulating around that parents might have heard that you would classify as misinformation? Yeah, maybe once in a while we get just being involved in the last year on social media has kind of opened my eyes to some of the information. So, for example, I, know I eat a lot of eggs. Some people think eggs cause cancer or eggs cause heart disease. There's a, I had another discussion with somebody about skimmed milk being white soda, that skimmed milk was just nothing more than white soda. Hmm. These types of, of things are, you know, yeah, there are studies. There are some studies for eggs and the science changes in terms of eggs being good or bad. And at the end of the day, you have to kind of balance it all out. I like eggs. I like the taste. I enjoy eggs. I keep track of my blood's cholesterol. It's not going up. It's really stable, although I am personally on a statin because I have a high LDL cholesterol, but I do keep track of it. So I think at the end of the day, that's what I mean by you have to just take the information that we have and apply it to your own particular situation and keep track of things to see how it's affecting your health. Mm -hmm. And hopefully having the healthcare access to be able to do that in a way that, that you can see if there are 
real negative consequences happening beyond the ones that you can actually observe with your eyes. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's a really important point that you kind of alluded to there that really, and this is, you know, the focus of my research is on those, the segment of the population that does struggle most, that doesn't have access, that doesn't have access to healthy foods necessarily or, or to track their health. And so the disparities in this, in this field are huge mm-hmm. and underappreciated. And we get very bogged down in a lot of the detail preaching to the choir to a certain extent, whereas I think the reality is the big problem here are the disparities that exist in nutritional health and nutritional outcomes. If, If I had all the power I could, that's what I would be trying to change is trying to flatten out some of those disequities and disparities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, spoke with Dr. Karen Throsby yesterday, and she's a sociologist. And her episode will probably be released after yours, so <laughs> listeners will hear this one first and then hers for additional context. And yeah, she was absolutely saying that we tend to focus on these individual topics because they're palatable, they're politically okay to discuss, whereas mm-hmm. affecting broader scale inequality, racism, access to healthcare, you know, nobody wants to touch it. And it's much easier to tell certain groups of people what to eat than it is to talk about how do we not have poverty anymore so that people can make the choices they want to make about the foods that they eat. I mean, that's where the predominant problem lies in, t- in terms of nutritional disparities and the health outcomes related to that poor nutrition. Yeah. So we have to get to SNAP and we have to get to WIC because there's big problems with, with those federal programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for listeners outside the US, those are programs that help families who don't have a lot of income to afford groceries. And so, yeah, so a bit, lots of, lots of uh, challenges in the world. <laughs> and we're working on the ones that we can at the moment. So thank you so much for being here and for helping us to get into the weeds on the research, which I enjoy. And I'm glad that you were able to help us to, to really understand a little bit more about what those studies say, and then also speak to what that means practically for how we can live ourselves and eat ourselves and also raise our children for the best possible start they can have in life. So, so yeah. thank you for being willing to talk through that with us. It's my pleasure. It's all in here. If you Absolutely. And so if, if you're watching on YouTube, Dr. Goran's holding up a copy of his book called Sugar Proof, and there's a link to that on our page where the episode is, and as well as links to all of the studies where you can dig into the research that we've dug into as well today. And you can find all that at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash sugarproof. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one. And also join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. For more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you, I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.